Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from our business in Vancouver newspaper and our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. This podcast is brought to you by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The DVBIA supports, promotes, and represents the shared interests of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90-block area of Vancouver's downtown core. Today on the show, the CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, as well as BIV's tech panel. Coming up next week, we launch our BIV Talks series. On March 26th, we're hosting an event on surviving the real estate slump. And following up on that, on March 28th, we'll take a look at the 5G dilemma. You can register now and get more information over at BIV.com slash events. We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to the show. Here we go. No, I don't want to say that. Hang on. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Here's our show. The Canada Pension Plan Investment Board invests the assets of some 20 million Canadians with the mandate of maximizing returns without undue risk of loss. This year happens to mark the 20th anniversary the CPPIB first received funds to invest on behalf of the Canada Pension Plan. It's come a long way in those two decades. It had more than $368 billion in net assets at the end of 2018. I'm joined today on the line from London by CPPIB President and CEO Mark Machen. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Pleasure to be on the show with you. You know, I'm I'm reflecting on the last two decades. The world was a very different place in 1999. When you look at the the significance, ultimately, of what the CPPIB has achieved in the last 20 years, what do you think about? Well, I I think it's remarkable. I mean, I think uh, it's a good time to pause at this 20-year mark and just be really uh, grateful for a number of things. I'm really, really grateful for the wisdom of the people who put us in place in the first place back in the, in the 1990s. And this was uh, a combined effort from federal and provincial governments and some very wise heads who put us in place at that point in order to create better returns uh, for the, uh, the pension fund at that point. And secondly, uh, there were a lot of wise decisions made by my predecessors and all the people who built the organization since 1999, when we first took that first, that, that first uh, amount of money that came through to us, and uh, and, and really uh, from the, the very beginning made uh, a whole series of um, you know, wise and thoughtful and careful decisions to, uh, to to build the fund to what it is today. And so I think the returns speak for themselves um, as a result of that. And that. So for the last 10 years or so, we've made over 10, 10% returns um, over that time frame. And that, that's the most important thing for us is that after all the expenses uh, of running the organization, that we make, uh, we, we make uh, really good returns uh, on the fund for, uh, for the pensioners. The mission over those 20 years, I imagine, has stayed the same. But I'm curious, to what extent has the investment board had to adapt over 20 years? Well, I think when when it started out, uh, it was you know it was very small. I mean, obviously, it started with you know just a handful of employees and a, uh, and a very uh, modest uh, objective to start out with, uh, which was uh, you know, just just to 
make sure that our systems worked and that you know, there was a uh, there, there was a, a, a sort of very careful sort of passive approach to investing in in those uh, first few years. Uh, once uh, confidence had grown that uh, there was sufficient capability internally, then there was uh, quite a, a bold decision made in 2006 to uh, to, to move to active investing, uh, with a view that the returns could be much better f- uh, for the fund through active investing. So that that was a big decision that was made in 2006 and implemented in 2007. And uh, so that, that that was one of the biggest changes. And part of that was done in 2008 to start opening some international offices and to really diversify the fund into uh, overseas markets as well. Uh, and so that, that, they're really the big changes that have happened is uh, the internationalization of where we invest and you know, more active and direct investing over the years. Where you are today, what are some of the greatest opportunities or areas that are being explored by the investment board around the world? Uh, well, we see, um, you know, we see opportunities you know, come and go in, di- in different markets. But the num- number one most important thing is for us to diversify, which really allows us to manage risks. As we see in the world today and we've seen in the world for the last several years, risk can pop up in any market, you know, even the most uh, mature, developed market, uh, there can be surprising political and other events that happen. Uh, that means markets can move, you know, quite quite violently, and that that uh, you know that that's obviously a big risk for the fund. Uh, and so, what the one protection against that is to make sure we are diversified across a whole range of different markets, a whole range of different strategies. A whole range of different asset classes, uh, and that so that's the most important thing that we do, and that so we've we've diversified into uh, into most of the major markets around the world, and within those markets, then we see interesting opportunities for uh, for, for additional value creation, where you know, markets from time to time and you know don't don't uh, perform efficiently uh, sentiment can change uh, quickly there's a lot of shorter term money that um, may have pressures whether it's redemptions or it's individual investors who have cash needs and they have they have to move out of uh, assets and that that's the time where patient long term capital like ours can take advantage and, and find uh, find things that have uh, you know better valuations at cheaper valuations in those markets to pick up on one of the things you said, I think many Canadians might feel being in our developed country that's relatively politically stable, we have seen the introduction of some political risk with trading, economic, social, political implications over the last couple of years. How uncertain a time would you say we're in right now relative to other points in history? And how does that factor into the decisions you try and make with the board? Yeah, so I I don't I don't want to underplay the risk today because there are a lot of risks in the world, but I do think that as human beings we we always think that the you know the the present moment is the most uncertain because you know it always is because you know you you're dealing with the the future and uh once said, you know, making predictions is very difficult, particularly when it's about the future. Um, so, uh, you know, so you, you, it's always a human tendency to think the current moment is the most uncertain. Uh, but when you look back at, you know, last 40, 40, 40 years or so, I mean, there's obviously been uh, moments of 
you know, a, a big turmoil. I mean, the 1970s, 1980s uh, had, uh, you know, all, all sorts of turmoil around the world. Um, you know, and, and every, every decade's seen that. And obviously, we lived through the global financial crisis just over 10 years ago as well. So, the, 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 so having said all that, I mean, today there are, uh, you know, there are clearly uh, major geopolitical tensions that are going on. There are, you know, there's the uh, the rise of populism uh, across a lot of countries uh, around the world, uh, and um, yeah, and and there's you know lots of economic stress as well that's lingered despite us being 10 years off the global financial crisis and you know one of those things is that just a massive rise in debt around the world which is dampening growth and making it difficult for central banks to manage uh, you know, manage getting interest rates back to what you would consider to be a normalized level. So if, you know, if you look at global debt today by some measures it's about 250 trillion dollars uh, about 320% of global GDP, and it's up 40% in the last 10 years. So, and a lot of that is at the household level um, as well as the corporate level. So, uh, and and in Canada, we certainly see that at the, the household level as well as a number of other similar markets around the world. There's always, of course, the question of yield, and even looking at the individual Canadian investor over the last decade, there have been implications about these decreasing interest rates, what that means for their individual savings. And as you mentioned, there's now a struggle to try and normalize interest rates that were very, very low for quite some time. What does that mean more broadly for the investment space and for a fund of your size when you're still seeing fairly low interest rates that can't quite normalize just yet? Yeah, so it it is uh, it's certainly a challenge if you are limited to investing in sort of debt instruments and you know, fixed income instruments uh, where where yields are very low. And I think, uh, for example, I quote the the new Calpers um, CIO who was in the press recently. They they've been trying to argue with their board to get permission to invest more in private equity. And you know, he's been saying that the, the only way you can get to the return levels that they require is through diversifying into private equity. You know, we, we've had uh, the ability to be more diversified and have more equity ownership, both public and private um, ownership, as well as a wide range of other assets like infrastructure and real estate and private credit, etc. So we've, we've taken advantage of that for many years and therefore um, have been able to build uh, a more diversified and higher return stream. But certainly if you're only relying on uh, those, those sort of fixed income returns, then, then uh, you're going to, you know, you, you're going to really struggle to have um, your, you know, your pension funds be, um, to be, you know, to sustainable over the longer term. Um, so that that's, that was one of the bold decisions that was made by those wise heads back in the 1990s to allow the fund to diversify away from just domestic um, you know, uh, fixed income investment to this broad range of uh, asset classes around the world. And it served Canadians incredibly well by allowing us to have much higher returns through this, uh, through this period. What are some of the opportunities being explored in the broad area of technology, both from an investment point of view, but also perhaps from a, a structural or organizational point of view? And by that, I mean perhaps taking on or adopting new technologies to make the organization more efficient. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question and something that you know we're going to continue to to work on. Um, we uh, you know we're we're looking at ways of using technology, obviously first of all to run things more efficiently and effectively, uh, so we can continue to do what we do with as low a cost as possible. You know, we're very, very mindful of cost. Every dollar that we spend uh, is a dollar that could be going into the fund for for the use of uh, Canadians, uh, Canadian pensions in the future. So we're very cost conscious. Um, so that's the first thing is just to drive things so we can do things more efficiently. And then the second thing, we're trying to find ways of using uh, data insights to uh, to, to have a wider range of inputs on investment decisions. So obviously, you know, for example, if you invest in a company, we do a huge amount of work and analytics to, to understand where that company, where the company's future revenue and profitability and profit margins going to be. Uh, we do a lot of modeling. We do a lot of work with uh, you know, consultants to understand the market and competitors and where their market share might go in the future, et cetera. Um, and we have spent time with management team, understanding the strength of management, the governance, you know, all sorts of aspects of the company. And, and one of the things we're looking at is, is could, could we use um, other data inputs to understand uh, whether uh, whether uh, this company is going to succeed in the future or is it going to be disrupted by some new up-and-coming uh, company that uh, has has a, a better approach um, and you know other other analytics that can show us how, how the company is performing, you know, with, with different insights than we might use from our traditional tools. Looking ahead, what are some of the trends, opportunities, and potential challenges you're considering? With respect to uh, other opportunities in the world, I think uh, you know, that there's certain markets that it looks like are going to continue to open up and grow for investment. So, I, you know, I'd say, for example, uh, the Chinese market has very little foreign ownership today, but gradually uh, there's more and more uh, foreign uh, opportunity for foreign ownership and an inclusion in the major indices that other foreign investors follow, uh, both on the bond side and on the equity side. So that, that market looks like it's going to open up quite significantly. Uh, I'd say that now, based purely on long-term demographics and probable economic growth, the Indian market is going to continue to grow. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then I'd say, you know, most likely the U.S. market is going to continue to be the biggest and most important uh, and deepest capital market in the world. So th- those markets are ones that, you know, we are keenly focused on and looking for, uh, looking for opportunities. Uh, so, and, and then the final thing I'll say is just back on your previous point. The rate of disruption just just continues. So it is e- e- even in things that we thought we could hold for the very long term and would not be disrupted. We've got to be really keenly aware of things that just could come up and surprise us that might disrupt. For example, investing in infrastructure projects like you know, power grids um, and uh, you know a- anything related to power uh, distribution and storage. Uh, there's the, the the rate of acceleration of renewables and uh, storage systems um, is really quite remarkable and is fantastic for the world uh, and certainly addressing you know, the challenges of, uh, of, of climate change. Uh, but you know, we, we've got to be careful about uh, making sure that the assets that we own are not 
you know, we, we price them correctly uh, so that we, uh, we're not, they're not unexpectedly disrupted. Mark, a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Mark Machin, President and CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. Time now for our weekly tech panel with us in studio, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you. For our first topic, we're revisiting, of course, that recent devastating attack in New Zealand. And along with that, the role and responsibility of social media platforms. This was live streamed on Facebook. It was shared many, many, many times around the world. And now there has since been a scramble to try and deal with that content. Linda, tell me what your thoughts are about our expectations for these platforms and then the technical limitations, perhaps, of handling something like this. My expectations for the platforms are clearly higher than Facebook's expectation for their platform. Mm. It's um, we need to do better. They need to do better. I'm I'm incredibly disturbed that they, uh, we have created, the big techs have created platforms for live streaming content with no ability to moderate the content that's going out in those live moments. Um, we, we need to change how we are policing this content, but we also, I think, need to stay away from the conversation of uh, how many times has this been shared and how, how much, um, how many views have they pulled down and how many likes did they have and look more at what we're creating with these social media platforms and this desire at all costs for these people to spread their hatred and, and spread uh, terror and, and concern around the world um, in an attempt to get more likes and more shares and, and fall into the traps the platforms have created of monetization. This is the way Facebook was designed to be used. Right. Yeah. So so the, the system's being used properly. It was gamed by this person. Yep. And the and Facebook is not uh, doing anything to help us help us as consumers figure out how to stop this. And it's their job to stop this. Yeah, and they did uh, in the in the short time after the uh, event remove I think one point five to two million uh videos, uh, you know, uh, that were just all sort of independently uh, posted. And so uh, I think they, they were, they were, I'm not sure how quick they were to react in, in retrospect, but uh, 1.5 million uh, videos were sort of manually removed from the system. That's quite a bit. But the, the point that I'll just, uh, I'll, I want to add, Linda, is it sort of, it seems to me like there's a bit of a double standard. Because if you think about television content, radio content, this is all filtered. I mean, you know, you may tape these things live, but there's, they're on tape delay. You have editors. You have public. You know, you have people that are that are shielding the public from uh, from live pro like problems that could happen on, in a live situation. Exactly. Internet, internet, there's a bleep button. Don't, yeah. There's exactly there's a bleep button. So so yeah. Where is that in online and, and should it be there? That's that's a, a question I think we all have to ask ourselves. And now marry it over to the fact that most um, YouTubers have their um, browsers set to autoplay videos. So now we're not only subjected to this content because it's out in the world, we're actually seeing it even if we don't want to. By the time you hit stop, the video is played. There's some graphic horrific content on the platform. And I got to say, the reason um, it took Facebook about an hour to pull it down, but let's be very clear about how they heard about the video. It wasn't the 10,000 plus human moderators they hired to 
vet content. It wasn't their super sophisticated AI. The New Zealand police had to call them and say, hey, it's 29 minutes in. I have a 17-minute video. We're half an hour into this attack. Yeah. Do something. That's sad. And 30 more minutes pass. So 1.5 million uploads, people taking the video 1.5 million times, 1.2 million of those blocked, 300,000 now copies circulating. But that's that's not even counting the people on 8chan and the other sites who were ahead of the game on this, the 4,000 views that were watched in real time and how they pulled that content off the web, stored it, uh, edited it. Uh, and changed it so that it couldn't be detected or hashed by AIs so they could pro- um, proliferate it more. It's really a horrible, when horrible we, view of society. When we talk about it, like like we're talking about it right now, it's hard not to think that these social media companies are fueling fueling the fire. It just feels like that. And I don't want, you know, New York Times had a great op-ed this morning and I saying, you know, is are these platforms really socially good when we're connecting in this way, when mm-hmm. we're incentivizing this behavior? I don't want to think the answer is no. I want to think the answer is yes, but it, today it feels like the answer is no. This isn't good. Something yeah, I, needs I think to if you change. ask Mark Zuckerberg, he'll he will say it still is. But sure. uh, over time, if these things continue to happen, I wonder if he'll have a workforce. Well, and let's just again, these guys aren't nonprofits. Let's keep clear: their motivation is is monetization, yeah. and mm-hmm. that's that's the conversation we need to be having. Whether or not the tech develops to be able to catch something like this, because I understand that's potentially a limitation, the AI for live video. Facebook has said it's moving away from potentially broadcasting your information news toward more private messaging. Could that potentially be a solution? Might we see Facebook move away from being this platform that allows news or live content or videos to be disseminated in this way? I don't see that happening. I, I, I see they've, they've come too far in one direction now, and, and now they need, to solve, uh, they need to solve the problem at hand, which is uh, they need some sort of real-time detection of, of problems in their, in their AI and, and in, their, in their platform. Or, or, or like you said, a delay button. Or a delay button. Let's just not exactly. live stream it. That's Let's right. just delay it. Um, Facebook going towards a messaging platform. Uh, what was it when Facebook went down? We'll talk about in a second. Three million users head over to Telegram in the next into within 24 hours to open up accounts. So I'm not sure Facebook becoming a secure messaging platforms anything anybody wants. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, agreed. That's a good point. Well, let's let's talk about that because Google, Apple, and Facebook, along with Instagram and WhatsApp, connected to Facebook, owned by Facebook, all had outages recently. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of hysteria and hype and sort of silly things around this about how will we survive through these blackouts. But moving beyond that nonsense, (laughs) is there cause for concern when so much of our lives are on these platforms? And if they go down, you might find yourself hooped if you're using it for business or something like that. Is there some seriousness to this or is it just silly, Allie? It's funny you use the word blackouts because we think about, you know, public utilities now as uh, as a a necessary uh, you know, utility for being able to live our lives. And I would argue maybe social media has become that now because people's livelihoods are attached to social media. I mean, there's people that generate income from social media. Uh, there's people that, that uh, don't know what's going on in the world unless they go on social media. They've given up their TVs. They don't listen to the radio. They don't have a car. Uh, so it is an interesting question. Is it a? Is it become a uh, utility? You know, a utility. <laughs> Facebook as a utility. That's it. That's the solve. Haley used the word blackouts, <laughs> not <did>. me. <laughs> well, would we view the internet as a utility? 
many people do absolute right. fundamental human uh, right access uh, right. to the internet i believe it's become one yeah right yeah no. um i didn't notice the blackout i'm happy to say <laughs> i actually polled a few people various ages very unscientific polls so people my age so over 55 um a few a few thought it was their fault so user error my mm -hmm. group always thinks it's user error and my 20 year old son and none of his friends even noticed. So, so obviously many people did, and it was it was a bit of an issue. But I find it more interesting since Apple went had a bit of a blackout at the same time. So did Google, as did Facebook. Um, when we talk about the utility, that's the cloud letting them down, right? That's actually what happened here. These aren't outside attacks knocking them out. This is the cloud infrastructure letting everybody down, and that's what we're seeing as the cloud as a utility is our access to the internet and these social media platforms access it's it, to the internet is pretty critical now. I, I think we could see more of this over the next few years as the world starts to transition to 5G. I think a lot of this legacy infrastructure is probably a bit dated to be able to keep up with the higher standards now. The graphics cards are going to be needed to be upgraded. The the memory in these in these servers, everything is sort of going to need to come into the new age. Every year, these things are taking more and more resources. So certainly, I would expect more more downtime. And imagine that eighty percent of our infrastructure is still on earth it's not in the cloud yet so wait till right. that number reverses itself and look mm. what an outage looks like at that time <laughs> well and I, I wonder too if if we saw an outage with aws amazon web services or something of that magnitude i mean that we joke that it's social media and it's facebook and sure we should all be able to live without facebook for 24 hours but if it's a more serious issue where there's a lot of business transactions web searches activity hosted there i mean that the would be a much comes more concerning to a stop issue wait till autonomous cars and smart cities and oh my goodness it, it is a benefit of the cloud though the cloud is is the cloud because uh, of its redundancy uh, mm -hmm. it, it, they're able to set up servers across north america across the world um, in multiple locations you have sort of uh, backups that are uh, fully redundant and, and backing one another up at, in, in real time that's that's really why we have the cloud and so it, it would take a fairly catastrophic event to to knock down business uh i think at least big business that probably has it fully cross you know yeah crossover it, it's not like servers. a storm a tree hits the power line and it goes out exactly we're, we're a little bit more robust than that in the cloud i think of that photo and i'm not sure if it's because of the cloud or what it was but there was a blackout in new york and it was just the goldman sachs building that was completely <laughs> lit up and it just sort of makes you think you know if there's a lot on the line and there is a lot on the line when it comes to certain firms they find a way to hedge against totally. potential failures yeah when we talk about social media, as we have for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, we almost always talk about privacy. You have to. Apple has a new commercial out, and it centers around privacy. And its tagline, I'll say it in case anyone hasn't seen it. You can find it easily online. But the tagline is, it should matter to the phone your life is on. Privacy, that's iPhone. Do we believe them? Ali? Uh, I, I thought it was a really good ad. Yes, I believe them. Uh, and I, and I, you know, but I, I'm also reading in between the lines. There's obviously a lot of political turmoil right now. And I think this is a reaction to politicians that are largely pointing the finger at tech companies right now and saying, it's your fault, it's your fault. Uh, but if you, you know, I think this is, and this is mainly happening in the US, uh, although it's, it's starting to make its way to Europe and Canada and elsewhere. But if you think about the real problem it's not probably it's probably not the tech companies it's probably the politicians it's probably the the laws and regulations that uh, are there to protect consumers and 
You know, I know, for example, the Trump administration very early after coming into power started to strip away a lot of privacy regulation. Uh, and so it's funny that they point the finger at companies like Apple and, and make a big deal out of them when it's their own regulation and their own policies that are really to blame here. Hmm. Uh, and that's that is uh, probably why com- you saw this ad because Apple's on the defensive and and the rest of these tech companies are going to do the same thing. They're not going to they're not going to sort of stand idle and and have uh, fingers pointed at them. At the end of the day, government makes the policies and the laws. Well, and I think Apple's drawing their line now firmly firmly in the sand. We are on this side of privacy and you guys are all on the other side. And they made that cheeky statement at CES with the, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone mm-hmm. in Vegas. Um, <laughs> and and Cook gave a really great speech in Brussels about digital ethics last year and his op-eds about privacy. So Apple is now going to be the, peop- the company that takes the helm on this. And he came very close to naming Google and Facebook and the other big techs and those um, attacks on the tech companies who are not allowing us to control our privacy, to own our privacy, to remove our digital footprint if we want to, um, and pushing the U.S. government, because the EU is ahead of us on this, pushing the U.S. government to make these data protection laws laws and not just suggestions, because clearly Facebook and Google and these guys are not taking the suggestions very much to heart or into their business plan. And to be clear, these were a lot of these laws and regulations were being proposed, and some of them had gone into effect under the Obama era administration. And so then pulled back, and they got stripped yeah. away because because uh, Trump started to you know he wanted to deregulate as much as possible and, and sort of save money. And so uh, one of the big ones was the privacy standards that were uh, for online consumers. There was was a a lot of rigor that went into that. And this ad is a really fun look at security and privacy, a critical thing we talk about a lot at Glue. It's really, really important, as we all know, to be maintaining our data, managing our data and understanding our footprint online. But what we see is, you know, Cook's not couching these terms, not sugarcoating these terms. He's saying this is the data industrial complex. These are data brokers going after our data, monetizing it, being given the data by the big tech companies because they have an edge to gain in this scenario. And this is surveillance. He used the word surveillance many times. and, And maybe it takes this strong language from a leader in the industry to have people like us having a conversation about it and and hopefully legislators, governments, more than the European Union, outside of the European Union, decide to take action. Uh, I think ultimately it will it will come down to the regulators and the governments to take that action. Because even a guy like Tim Cook or Tim Apple, as he's called by right? Trump, uh, he's, he's going to be in a conflict. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the tens of thousands of apps, the millions of apps that are available on iPhone uh, these app providers are making money off the data and off people's privacy. And so he's just inherently in a conflict. At the end of the day, the regulators need to come in and put policies around this and laws around this to protect the consumers. Tim Cook's not going to be able to do it. He's in the middle. And, and you know, he, and Apple's not perfect when it comes to privacy and security, but they seem to be better. When I draw the spectrum, I've got Apple at one end and Google at the other. Mm. Facebook heading down towards Google and maybe Microsoft in the middle. Well, now we have Apple with this marketing campaign, like you said, stopping short of naming Google and Facebook, but it's clearly targeted at some of their peers in this space. What do you think we see from Google? This is a slippery slope. Uh, and I don't, I don't think the, I really don't think that it's a good message for the tech companies to be pointing at one another. I don't. Uh, this is at the end of the day, this is up to 
this is up to the government. I mean, in the EU, they're they're stepping in and putting these these laws and regulations in place, and that will protect consumers. And, mm-hmm. and then the companies will have to abide by those rules or get fined significantly. Um, and that needs to happen in North America. I as must well. be naive. I I can imagine a world in which Google steps up and align. No, you know, no, wouldn't that be a great money. story? I know it's it would just be so great. There's you know, if Facebook money. and Google said, "All right, let's do this." They're, Let's they're, use technology for good. They're, they are in the business of data and making money off that yeah. data. And that's yeah. our data. It's our, pri- it's our private data. So they're, they're not going to, unless the government says you cannot do this, they're going to they're gonna do it. That's you burst in my reality. bubble. I'm sad. So, you're well, right. You're totally right. <laughs> I asked Ali whether he believed the ad. I'll ask you, if you saw Facebook and Google tomorrow come out and say, okay, Okay, Linda, we heard your call. We heard you. <laughs> We're taking privacy seriously Yay. now. Would you believe them? No, but I'd be happier. And I'd think, all right. And even obviously, Tim Cook is saying this because he's positioning his company on the right side of history and positioning it as a, the platform we can trust. So we'll go buy into his platform. I get that. But at least he's doing things that are helping align with my personal goals in a digital world. And so if Facebook and Google said, all right, let's get these four principles Tim's suggesting enacted into law and we're going to push and make it happen. I would feel better about using technology and using more technology and continuing to integrate it into my already fully technology integrated life. Um, but what happens now when they don't do that, when it is exactly what Ali said, he's exactly right. It's going to take government to slap them on the wrist and then put handcuffs on them and then find them, find them, find them until they change. And what that makes me want to do is pull back. I'm not going to use it. I'm going to have to talk to people about really being careful about where they open themselves up online, what social media platforms they choose to use, what products they bring into their life. And I like a world where technology moves forward with humanity and makes us better. I don't like this world where I'm afraid what's going to happen next. And New Zealand being a horrible, horrible example of what happens when a slap on the wrist doesn't do anything. Mm hmm. It does seem, going back to the the second topic about the outages at some of these companies, it's one thing if it's temporary, but to make a choice in the face of a lack of government regulation to mm-hmm. not use any of these services seems almost impossible. That comes with consequences to not being online, to not having social connections. It's one thing to not have Facebook. It's another to not use Google or Apple or cell phones or anything. People are relying on WhatsApp for communication today. You know, they do phone calls on WhatsApp. They don't they don't subscribe to a telephone service anymore. They just find a Wi-Fi spot and call on WhatsApp. Yeah. And so this is uh, this is the world we live in. It's it's very hard to disconnect. Our smartphones are our banks. This is how we're sure. moving money. This is how we're paying for things. And this maybe not so much in North America, but certainly worldwide. That's these are critical devices. So when we say the internet is a basic human right, access to the internet, it's really, sure really is. true. Mm-hmm. And we've just started to scratch the surface. Yeah. I think that's a good place to leave. <laughs> we'll dig deeper. So deep, deep. <laughs> the, the whole next 10 gets years, deeper. we'll yeah. get to the bottom of this. Linda, Ali, thank you so much for a great discussion. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Linda Faucus, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. 
That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. And we want to get the word out. So if you loved an episode or a fan of the show, please consider sharing it within your social networks. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also listen to past episodes and read, watch, listen to more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks for listening.